Well, we have indeed worshipped the Lord this morning so far, have we not? Amen. It's been a good morning to see God moving in the lives of different generations of our members. See God moving as we sing to Him, about Him. And now it's been my prayer in these last few moments that God would continue to move as we open His Word and He speaks to us directly through Exodus chapter 20. We continue, we, we continue back into our study of the Ten Commandments, and today God has us at the Tenth Commandment, and it reads just like this. Here's what Moses wrote, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That's Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. I'm very qualified to preach this sermon this morning. I've been qualified to preach all of these sermons on the Ten Commandments, not because I've mastered them, because I know every nook and cranny for how we violate them. We struggle with every one of these commandments. And so I stand before you today not as one who has mastered the command to not covet, but I stand with you as one who urges you to join me into striving hard to trust in Christ so that I can have a chance to honor God and what he said in calling us not to covet. Coveting is deeply rooted in the human heart. It's deep down inside of us. This command is unique in that it is the only commandment of the ten that addresses the heart. All the others address really external behaviors. You shall not murder. You shall not lie. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall honor your father and your mother. On and on and on. These are commandments that, that direct our actions and our behaviors. But the tenth commandment, you shall not covet, is drilling right into the human heart. And we need to understand that God is very, very focused throughout the Bible, especially in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached. He's very focused on having our hearts and not just our actions. He wants right hearts and then he wants right actions. And better said, he wants our hearts to be right so that our actions will be right. Yeah, coveting is deeply rooted in the human heart. And we see this all the way back into the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. How many times do I stand before you on Sunday mornings and draw our attention back to Genesis 1 through 3? Christianity is founded there and there's so much explanation that comes from Genesis 1 through 3 so we can understand the whole rest of the Bible. And I want to show you this morning that coveting, this command against coveting, goes all the way back to the garden where Eve is faced with a temptation by the serpent. And so turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 and let's look at verses 4 through 6. Because this is where the 10th commandment starts. This is where the 10th commandment is needed. Moses wrote Genesis 3 as well. And here's what God inspired him to write as he tells the account of the serpent tempting the woman to eat of the tree that God forbid them from eating. It says this, Genesis 3, 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now he's calling God a liar right there because God has said, For the day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, watch her covet here, folks. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The sin in the garden began with a sin in the heart of coveting. She coveted the food of the tree because it was good for food. It was delightful to the eyes, and she wanted to please herself by getting what her eyes were delighting in. And the tree was desired to make one wise, and so she coveted wisdom. And actually, she coveted what Satan tempted her with, to be like God. And so in her covetous heart, she acted out the disobedient feat of eating of the tree that God forbid her from eating from. So coveting deeply rooted in our heart, goes all the way back and began in Genesis chapter 3 and led us to the fall that we now live the experience of. So let me, let me define for you this morning what it means to covet. We need to understand what this term covet means because our culture right now doesn't even use this language very much. We use terms like envy and jealousy. These are synonyms for covet. You shall not be envious of your neighbor's wife and your neighbor and what he has in his possessions. You shall not be jealous of what your neighbor has. That's what it means. So we are not to be envious or jealous. We are not to be covetous. And here's what coveting means in a real simple definition. To covet is to long for, to crave, to yearn for deeply inside of you for something that is not yours, but is someone else's. That's it. That's the key. It is to long for something that is not yours, but actually belongs to someone else. And God does get specific here in Moses' text. He says, neighbor's house, neighbor's wife, male and female servants, oxen, donkeys, But then he says this, or anything that is your neighbor's. So this is an all-encompassing command. He gives us some specifics, but then he gives the overarching, you are not to covet anything, anything at all that belongs to your neighbor. So there is a definition of coveting. It's desiring something deeply that belongs to someone else that doesn't belong to you. Why is coveting wrong? It's one thing to understand what coveting is, but it's another thing to understand why coveting is wrong. And I want to I, I just put it out here on the table for you, and here's the big statement of why coveting is wrong. It is not being satisfied in what God has provided you. So coveting is against God. It's not really against your neighbor. Coveting is a way that we subtly shake our fist at God and say, what you have given me is not sufficient. What you have withheld from me, I deserve, I need. And so coveting is actually, in a roundabout way, a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before you. You are saying when you covet, I am saying when I covet, I am God, I know what's best for me, and I need that. 
and you, God, who really are the true God, you've fallen short here, and I need to make up for your deficiencies. That is why it's wrong to covet. Yeah, yeah, we are to love our neighbor, and this is towards our neighbor, but every sin that we commit, remember, we've said this week in and week out, every sin that we commit is a sin against God first because God's the one that gave us the commands. No man gave us this command. This is from God himself. And so we are disapproving of God's provisions when we covet, and and we're disapproving of God's timing of his provisions when we covet. We want it now. We think we're ready for it now, and we are finding fault in God and his timing. And this is exactly tragically what Eve did in the garden. She chose to defy God's command because she thought she knew better. That's the heart of coveting. So this morning, I want you to ask yourself this question as we go through this text. What is it that you covet? I got to do this all week. You have to do it with me for a few minutes here this morning. I beat on myself all week. What do I covet? You covet land, boats, uh, jobs, employment, degrees, relationships, children, marriage. What do, you, what do you covet? What do you not have right now that you ache for? And what are you saying to God that, that, that you're not approving of his timing and his provisions? And what you need to understand as we go through this is the very fact that you don't have what you're coveting may be a gift from God. Because it may be the absolute worst thing you could possibly have right this minute. It may be the one thing that you desire so much that it will replace God in your soul and you will be satisfied in it and not be satisfied in God. And so in his graciousness, God withholds it from you. And you don't know if that's going on or not. And so hold tight and trust God in his provisions and his timing. He may be denying you things that you strongly want, maybe even things that you need because he's testing you. He's tempering you. And he's preparing you for the day that when you do have it, so that when you have it, it is not what you were about, but you were about the one who provided it to you. So I want to encourage you to be careful as you look at these things that you're tempted to covet and that you realize that there is a sovereign God who is sovereign over time and provisions and who is merciful and gracious and will give you everything you need in its day. I want to give you an application of what this issue of coveting means to us. Do you realize that the United States economy is based on the foundation of you and I coveting. This is so tight in our hearts. We, We have such a struggle with this issue that our economy has learned that we are covetous people. And so they advertise to us to fuel this covetousness that's welling up deep down inside of us. You watch any commercial on TV... You see any print ad, any radio ad, and you will see people playing to our tendency towards the temptation of coveting what our neighbor has. Our economy tells us that we are what we drive. We are what we earn. We are what we possess. We are what we eat. We are, we are, we are whatever we are able to acquire and possess. 
And so the culture that we live in, I don't care what age you are here this morning, the culture that we live in is playing to your covetousness that's deeply seated down in your heart. And I want you to see that. I want you to watch TV differently as a result of this. I want you to live out in the world this next week differently. I want you to see the world, and I want you to see the enemy, the enemy that encountered Eve in the garden saying, you really need this. Surely God wouldn't want you not to have this. And you need to start saying, I'm going to put a fence around my heart, and I'm not going to fall into this temptation to sin by coveting. And I'm going to honor the Lord by saying, he gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is why we have astronomical credit card debt and car payments that we can't afford. We have succumbed to the temptations of the culture to own and possess and possess and possess. And I'm going to give you a news flash this morning. Everything that we have determined in our lives is an absolute need, an absolute mandatory possession really isn't. Really isn't. We are coveting things that are fleeting, that will evaporate before our very eyes. And if not, they will evaporate the minute we no longer draw breath. There's a confession of covetousness in the Bible. The writer of Psalm 73, his name is Asaph. And he says this, and I think we can identify with this passage. He says this in 70, Psalm 73, 2. But as for me, he's speaking to God in a prayer. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. That's a confession of coveting what the world and the men and women of the world have that they don't, that he doesn't. And I think we are all prone, we are all inclined to covet what the world has. And we totally forget that our sufficient God has sufficiently supplied us in a sufficient time. There's a biblical example that will rock your world if you have not already thought of it. There's a biblical example of the wickedness of covetousness. And I just want to summarize it for you real quick. It is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it is the story of David and Bathsheba and a man named Uriah. And I'm going to tell you that David had the worst season, maybe the worst season in the history of mankind, a season of life that is bar none, there's not any worse than this one. For you see, David violated, as I see it, the last five of the Ten Commandments in this short season of life. And this short season of life is probably a month. I don't know how long this whole story took place. But he, first of all, committed adultery. He violated the Seventh Commandment because he had relations with another man's wife, Bathsheba. He secondly tried to cover that up by violating the ninth commandment. He bore false witness against her husband Uriah, trying to dupe him into being with his wife so that the pregnancy could be attributed to him instead of David. He then, in in, uh, violation of the sixth commandment, had Uriah murdered, 
murdered. He had his troops draw back on the front lines, and Uriah was left alone and killed by the enemy. And then he finally stole, violating the Eighth Commandment, when he took Uriah's wife after his death to be his wife. That's quite a rap sheet already. But where is the root of all of those four violations? It's in coveting. He violated the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And let me show you exactly where it happened in Second Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Bang, coveting his neighbor's wife, Uriah's wife. And in that moment... When he covets her, it sets into motion murder, lying, stealing, and uh, adultery, all from coveting. So I'm here to tell you this morning, coveting is more serious than you think. This is a more grandiose temptation. This is a more horrific sin than you and I are tending to give credit to it. Because it is the beginning of a multitude of other sins. We will do a multitude of things to fuel our covetous desires. So in and of itself, coveting is a sin of great magnitude. Just by itself. Because it is saying to God, you have not provided for me sufficiently. But then on top of that, it doesn't stop there. Because it gives birth, as in David's life, to all kinds of sin. We will chase after jobs that we shouldn't have. We will chase after relationships that we shouldn't have. We will spend money that we don't have because we covet. And on and on and on. We will say things. We, we covet someone's intelligence. We will gossip about them to tear them down to make ourselves look more intelligent. You see this? It all is born from a heart that covets. And ultimately we covet the praise of man. So this is a major, massive sin. I I read one commentator this week who said that he, he criticized Moses. It's unbelievable. He criticized Moses for the order in which he listed the Ten Commandments. And he said he should have started with coveting the, the little one and worked his way up to the first commandment. The first commandment should have been the tenth commandment, so there'd be this big climax in the Ten Commandments. I mean, there's all kinds of problems with this. Number one, God inspired this in a unique order. Okay, he's totally disregarding the fact that God inspired every word of the Bible and that it's inerrant and that it's in the exact order that our supreme God called it to be in. But he also is showing that he's belittling the sin of coveting. And I'm here to tell you this morning that it is a, it is a capstone, it's a tenth commandment that actually circles us back to the first commandment. You shall not covet because when you covet, you're making yourself out to be God to determine what you need and when you need it. And it takes us right back to the first commandment that says, you shall have no other gods before you. When I'm coveting, I'm a God. I'm worshiping myself, not worshiping the God who provides. So this is a big commandment that does not need to be belittled as some soft sin. This is a violent sin that leads to even more violent sins. 
So I, I think we could go on and on this morning about we shall not covet and what this looks like. I think you know exactly what coveting looks like. I think you're tracking with me in your heart. You know this. So here's where I want to divert our attention. I want us to understand what we should do in the place of coveting. We shall not covet, but what then shall we do? And if the 10th commandment were cited to us in the positive, I think it would read like this. You shall be content. That's the opposite of coveting. The opposite of coveting is contentment. Satisfaction with where you find yourself in life, certain that God is sovereign in providing for you the things that you need in the moments that you need them. And we will never, ever solve our desire for contentment by getting material things that we think we want or we need. Listen to Paul, 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 6. He says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Just listen to this. This is a scary passage. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing... With these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into menly, senseless, and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's a passage you need to go read this week at work in the office. At home at night when you're watching TV, tempted to be covetous with these TV commercials. You, 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 need, to, you need to dwell on that passage this whole week. It's, it's 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And the desire, the covetousness that comes of wanting money and possessions leads people even away from the faith and pierces themselves with many pangs. Covetousness is deadly. It's lethal to the soul. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content, content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. That's our God speaking. Be content because God will never leave you and never forsake you. And so we can confidently say, Hebrews says, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. So let me define contentment for you very clearly. And ladies, you're going to get a much clearer definition of this on your retreat. I can't wait to hear about what you guys encounter with the Lord on that retreat. Here's my brief definition of contentment. Wanting what God wants for me rather than what I want for me. Contentment is wanting what God wants for me rather than what I want for me. And I'm going to tell you what. If we can live there, if we can live that statement out, you, you will begin to taste joy, abundant joy, and abundant life that God has intended for you. We are not a joyful people 
because we covet. And we covet because we don't have. And it leads to all kinds of problems in our lives. And so we need to arrive at the point. We need to have such strong and robust Christian faith that we can say, I want what God wants for me and when God wants it for me instead of what I want for me and when I want it for me. That is the secret to living a godly life. That is the secret to worshiping God with your life in all times and in all circumstances. To say, I want what he wants for me, not what I want for me. And when. That's a big challenge. I've studied on this all week. I've prayed about this all week. And I still have things in my heart that I have to give over to the Lord. I'm not there yet. Man exists, I've said this a many, many times from this pulpit, man exists to glorify God. God created man to know him and to enjoy him forever. Not just while we're here on earth breathing, but forever. And this is the only place that man can find contentment is when we enjoy God and what he's given us. Not what we want. I promise you it's true. You will only enjoy God and worship Him forever when you are absolutely satisfied with what He's provided for you. The world will never, ever satisfy you. If we need different things, if we need different gifts, if we need different looks, possessions, whatever it is, to glorify God, I promise you God will give it to us. And we have to be that submitted to God. That he created us to glorify him and to worship him. And so if I need something, he's going to provide it so that I can use it for his glory. Problem is, when we covet, we want to use it for our glory. And God is good when he doesn't give us the things that we want to use for our glory. He is good to us when he does that. And if you think it was, then you're violating the first commandment. I do not want God to give me things that are going to distract me away from him. (laughs) I want him to put a fence around me and razor wire and alligator pits and landmines and scorpions and everything so that people cannot bring to me the things that would drag me away from God. I need God to protect me from the things that I think I want and need. And I only, only want him to give me what will be used To glorify him. And we learned in Sunday school this morning that when we enjoy God's glory, we benefit greatly and God is magnificently worshiped. So I only want, and I'm saying this right now, and I know I'll struggle this next week when I go out into the world, but I'm telling you right now, I only want those things that God will enable me to have that will bring him glory. Then I will be content in this life and I will be content for all of eternity. Whatever we possess, God calls us to use it to glorify him to the fullest right now, whatever situation we find ourselves in. So really, covetousness or contentment, whichever way you want to look at it, is a deeply theological issue. Theology means the study of God, okay? And so... Whatever we, wherever we are on the contentment or coveting scale says exactly what we think about God. It's a report card. 
on what our hearts are saying about God. And the way we rid ourselves of covetousness is to be completely satisfied in God. Otherwise, to be completely satisfied in the world is to not be satisfied in God. And we do not want to live in that place for one second. Let me give you a biblical example that if embraced and imitated will calm you and comfort you for all of your days. We heard Kay on the video read this passage of Scripture, and it is so perfect for this contentment sermon. Philippians four eleven through 13, Paul writes, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. You know, let me just pause. Every human being ever made, every human being ever made desires deep down in their heart to be content. Would you disagree with that? We're all pursuing contentment, satisfaction, pleasure, joy. And the human life in a fallen world is is an absolute confused pursuit of happiness and joy. And when we look to the world to give us happiness and satisfaction and contentment, we will always, always, always be disappointed. Why? If we put our contentment in humans, humans will wrong us because they're fallen. Humans will ultimately pass away. Humans will grow up and go to college and not call us every weekend. Right? If we put our happiness in that, we're going to be miserable. If we put our happiness in money, in possessions, where if we put our happiness in things where moth and rust will destroy and thieves will break in and steal, we will be disappointed every single time. And if we possess those things and find our satisfaction in them all our life and, and die in old age with a smile on our face, finding peace and satisfaction in stuff, we will be eternally dissatisfied because we will be separate from God because he will say, I never knew you. Your possessions knew you, but I never knew you. And so we'll spend eternity disappointed and dissatisfied, discontented. We will spend eternity like the man, the rich man in Lazarus. Lazarus, He said if he could just reach down and dip his finger into the water and wet my tongue, he's coveting water for eternity in that parable in Matthew. And so the human heart, we're, we're desiring contentment. And God is saying to us over and over again, I am your source of provision. I am your timing mechanism. Trust in me and you will be content and you will be peaceful. In this life that you have now, in all of eternity that you have to experience with me. So back to what Paul said. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, <clears throat> in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Ladies, you're going to go on a retreat, and the theme is contentment, and there is a secret that we're going to pray you will discover fully on this retreat, and you'll come back different. And I'm going to tell you what the secret is today, because the secret is something that we need to proclaim every time we're together. The secret is Jesus Christ. 
It's not some human trick. It's not some psychological ploy that you practice on yourselves. No, contentment is Him who strengthens me. And in all of our circumstances, we can be content if our hearts and our minds and our lives are focused and founded upon Jesus Christ. Yet you and I are going to leave here and we're going to be tempted to focus our hearts and our minds on our jobs, in our bank accounts, in our 401k plans, in our real estate, in our car. It's three years up, and I probably need to trade out and get a new one. And I wish it didn't make that funny noise, and on and on and on. And if I could only have a car that ran just exactly right, I could breathe easy. That's coveting. That's not being content in Christ. We have an epidemic, don't we? But we have an inoculation. We have a cure. We have a remedy. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he died on a cross for the sin of covetousness. And he rose from the dead, defeating that sin forever. And if we believe in him, and if we profess him as Lord, and if we believe that he was raised from the dead and had victory over sins, we can be content. So long as we live there embracing that truth day in and day out. So when you find yourself not content, when you find yourself coveting, you need to say, there needs to be alarms going off in your head immediately. I have a relationship problem in this moment with Jesus Christ. Because I am not saying in my heart, much less with my mouth, I am at peace. I can do all things through him, no matter what my circumstances are. So every covetous moment is a moment that tells you and me, We have a relationship problem with Jesus Christ. And that's good. That's conviction. And that needs to draw us to our knees to repent of covetousness and to find peace again in our Lord who will come again and deliver us from this for all time, once and forever. So, what do you covet? If we covet a new car, the minute we drive it off the lot, it is worth significantly less than we bought it for. If we covet new clothes, New York will tell us that that's out of fashion in three months and we'll have to go covet the next round of new clothes and we'll sell them for pennies on the dollar in somebody's garage sale. You covet fame, you'll be forgotten just like that because somebody will come and do the next big thing and it will be the most famous thing at the moment and they'll be one-upped by somebody else. All these things we covet are fleeting, and they will evaporate before our very eyes, if not for all of eternity when we pass on. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian who struggles with coveting, like me, you need to to walk yourself through this line of thinking. If God provided for me eternal life in Jesus Christ, what else do I need? If God provided for me this, do you understand the miracle that this thing, this Bible exists in my hand right now after centuries of people trying to snuff it out? After centuries of people trying to distort it and debunk it? The fact that this still thrives and is living and active and and that is in all of our laps here this morning, this is a miracle that we still have this Bible. If God can provide me with this Bible through all of humanity's attempts to snuff it out, 
can he not provide me the little things in life? This, this right here is a testimony to God's provision. And I'm worried about food or clothes or cars or houses or all these things. And, and, and I've got this. So if God can deliver this through everything, he can deliver me through any little circumstance that I'm going to face this next week. And that goes even to disease and death. He can deliver me through everything, and I can be content in him and him alone who strengthens me. If you're not a believer here this morning and you're not content, and you're covetous, you're covetous I, I would say to you, you have contentment waiting for you, but it will only be found in submitting your life to Jesus Christ. I guarantee it. I, I promise you, you will not find peace in this life, and if you dare do, you will not find peace for eternity apart from Jesus Christ. So I would urge you, I would urge you, believer and non-believer here this morning, look to Christ and be content. And then you'll be able to say verses like this, Psalm seventy-three twenty-five: Whom am I in heaven but you, O God? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's where we need to be as followers of him. Let's pray. Father, you have struck a chord in, in everyone in this room this morning. There's not a person here that struggles with, that doesn't struggle with contentment. Not a person. If anyone dares to claim that, they are lying. We crave things, Father. And, and I pray on behalf of all here that you would forgive us for craving anything besides you. Father, our life is but a mist. It, it's a vapor. It's a blip on a radar screen compared to all of eternity. And what we do crave, Father, is peace and contentment for all time. And you have told us this morning, Lord, that that can only be found in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, Caden and Morgan proclaim that to us this morning. That they've discovered the source of contentment. And his name is Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would point their hearts to him day in and day out. And you'd protect their young faith from the bombardment that our world will throw at them to covet and crave things that are fleeting. Father, Matt Gray proclaimed to us today the sufficiency of your word. And within the last two to two and a half years, he, he found your word to be alive and vibrant. And he has, as I've known in my discussions with him, developed a craving for your word. And every time he goes to your word, he's satisfied. I pray that you would keep him there for the rest of his days and that you would do mighty things through him because of this coveting of you in your word. Father, help us. We, we are so distracted by this world. I pray that today would be a wake-up call and that you would fix our eyes forever on you. And when we're faced with covetous desires, 
we would be convicted by your Holy Spirit about our relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we are made right with you, our Father. And I pray this in his name. Amen.